God does not need our money. Amen? Some of you want to say, Amen, that's why I'm not going to give it. God doesn't need it. God does not need our money. He owns it all. But the truth is, giving, according to God's Word, tells more about who we are than it does about God's need. And what we have to understand is that God's calling us to be a part of something unbelievable. It's been a little bit of a crazy week on Wall Street, right? Some of you follow that real closely, some of you don't. I had an interesting conversation with uh, somebody that's younger than me this week about the stock market. And, you know, the reality is 10 years ago I cared very little about the stock market. But about 10 years ago when I became a pastor, I began to put something some money each month in a retirement account that is tied to the stock market. And there are a lot of great things about the Internet these days, a lot of great things that we can use and do. In fact, uh, this, this week we had a senior adult technology days, and we went over some basics of the Internet, and it showed a lot of good things that the Internet can do. One of the things that the Internet's not good for is that I can get online any day and check my retirement, almost minute by minute. And I'm going to tell you, it was not a good week if you have high blood pressure for somebody to do that. Right? First of the week, big crash. On Tuesday, big rally. On Wednesday, big crash. On Thursday, big rally. On Friday, bigger rally. But people worry that the rally's not good, so there may be a big crash coming ahead. It was up and down over and over all week. In fact, on one of those days, I remember getting online and seeing not my retirement, but the stock market in general had gone way up early and then way down late. Point swings that hadn't been seen in months were seen in hours. And so it was up, down, in, out. People were trying to figure out the best place to put their money, the best investments in this turbulent time. Well, let me tell you that this morning we're going to talk about the best place to put your investment because it is a can't miss investment it is a sure thing financial analysts will tell you that there are no such things as sure things but i can tell you that scripture teaches us that there are matthew chapter 6 starting in verse 19 now this is in the most famous sermon of all time the sermon on the mount jesus is just going through topic after topic and he gets to chapter 6 verse 19 and it says do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. First thing that we're going to talk about this morning is that we must invest wisely. We must invest wisely. Now, I want to tell you that as you look at this passage of Scripture, sometimes people have said, well, Jesus is saying here that you shouldn't be into investment. And that can be farther from the truth. What Jesus is saying here is, it's not that you shouldn't be in investments. What it means is that you ought to invest your money in a place that is going to bring about the greatest returns. In fact, if Jesus were to talk to us, what he would say from this is that we're not not to not invest, but to stop storing them in the wrong place and start putting them somewhere else. You see, in Jesus' mind, there were always two kingdoms. We've talked about this a little bit in the last year, but there were always two kingdoms. There was the here and now, the, the current time, the present age. And then there was the age to come. 
Now, in Jesus' mind, in Jesus' teaching, those two things, once Jesus came to earth, began to overlap. And so we are living in two different times right now. We are in the present age, what we see, what we understand, the physical reality of where we are. But we are also a part of the age to come, the end times, the last days, and Jesus has inaugurated that. And so when Jesus taught, he always had these two kingdoms in mind. And what he would say to us is that you must make a choice whether or not you're going to live for one kingdom or the other. And so when it comes to the money matters, when it comes to the things of investments, Jesus says you must learn to invest in the right things. So we must learn, number one, to invest wisely. John Wesley, a preacher from many years ago, says, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. David Livingston said, I place no value on anything I possess except in relationship to the kingdom of God. And then perhaps one of my uh, all-time heroes in the faith, a man named Jim Elliott, who was actually uh, martyred for his faith, once said in a very famous quote in his journal that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Because you see, the reason Jesus wants us to understand to invest wisely is that there's an old saying around that you can't take it with you. Right? You can't take it with you. Now, I remember driving by a funeral home one time, and it was a place in town. It was a small community. It was the small community's funeral home. Everybody Uh, There was only one funeral home in town, so everybody knew it was a funeral home, and they built a nice new place with a big covered parking area. And I remember driving by one time, and there sat the hearse in the covered parking area. Now, that's not unusual. There are lots of times hearses parked at funeral homes. But what made this particularly unusual is that in the way that it was parked behind the hearse, it appeared there was a boat hooked up to the hearse. And not like a pontoon boat. This was like a high-dollar ski boat. And the first thought that came into my mind was that old quote by Billy Graham when he says, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. But apparently this guy thought there was going to be skiing in heaven and he needed it with him. But the truth is, the, the ridiculousness of seeing that behind the hearse just points out the fact that you can't take it with you. Now, Scripture is very clear on that. Look at these two passages that are on your handout if you haven't. Ecclesiastes 5.15 is pretty stark. It says, We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. Hallelujah. Doesn't that sound great? We can't take our riches with us. Look at Psalm 49, 16-20. Don't be impressed with those who get rich and pile up fame and fortune. They can't take it with them. Fame and fortune all get left behind. Just when they think they've arrived and folks praise them because they've made good, they enter the family burial plot where they'll never see sunshine again. The reality is you can't take it with you. Many of you know that my mother-in-law is in her final days. That Susan's mom has been living with cancer for close to two years now, and the cancer has just ravaged her body. And we I was actually there for the last few days. Susan and the boys are are in West Tennessee right now, and so we appreciate your prayers greatly for them. Uh, we don't know how long Miss Marilyn's going to live. It may, be, uh, it may be hours, it may be days, it may be weeks. We don't know, but the end is near. 
And you know, one of the things that has happened over the last few days with, with Susan and her mom is that her mom has begun to tell her what she wanted to do with her stuff. Some of you mothers understand that. Your daughters understand that. Maybe you've been with uh, loved ones as they've gone through that. What to do with the jewelry. What to do with the furniture. Where it needs to go. And as I was reading this passage of Scripture and I was thinking about my mother-in-law and thinking about uh, this lady who has lived her life to to the glory of God, I I was glad to know that when her, her time comes at the end, the most important treasures that she has are not the ones she's telling Susan what to do with. That when she takes that step from here into eternity, that the most important treasures that she has are those treasures that she's laid up in heaven. Because the reality is she can't take that jewelry with her. She can't take that furniture with her. She can't take those things with her to heaven. But the truth is, what Jesus teaches here is, even though you can't take it with you, there's a new addition. You can send it on ahead. Now, you know, the the ancient Egyptians thought they could send it on ahead by burying it with people. But that is not the case. The biblical concept is not that you're able to to hoard it. The biblical concept here is that you're able to choose whether you're going to invest here or you're going to invest in eternity. In another place in Matthew, Jesus tells a parable about wealth, about discovering true wealth. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, this man probably had some possessions, and he probably was tied to them pretty tightly. But the truth is what Scripture teaches us is when you get the right perspective and you understand the true nature of what wealth is, the true understanding of possessions, the true understanding of what God wants us to lay up in heaven, that we should be so excited about what God has done for us and what He is promising us on the other side that we would give up anything here on earth to see accomplished what needs to be accomplished. For his kingdom. John White said about the man in the parable, the choice he faces lies between his worthless bits and pieces and the field with buried treasure. There is nothing noble about the sacrifice. There would, on the other hand, be something incredibly ridiculous about not making the decision. Anyone but a fool would do exactly as the man did. Everyone will envy his good fortune and commend him not on his spiritual character, but on his common sense. This week I was in the car, and with Susan being in Jackson for this week, Eli and I had a week together. And I drive Eli to school anyways in the mornings and usually pick him up at lunchtime uh, because they have to be there at 7 o'clock in the morning. Out of school by lunchtime. Any of you parents out there at Madison Creek feel my pain? Let me just see the hands. Thank you. It's amazing. On Saturdays now I wake up at 5.55 wide-eyed ready to go. But I pick him up, and we ride around, and there's always music playing in the car. And on this particular day, he started to sing a song that's been on the radio recently uh, by a, a guy named uh, Toby Mack with Kirk Franklin and Mandisa. All right? Some of you never heard of those people before. I am sorry for you because they're great. But some of you probably wouldn't enjoy the music too much. But they sing a song that just simply says, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. Now, that's not an original thought, is it? Where's that come from? We're in church. Probably there's a good answer here. Where's it come from? The Bible. There you go. 
I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. So Eli starts singing that song. It's one of those things. It's not on the radio at that particular time. It's past been on the radio. But he just starts singing that song. And I say, Eli, do you know what that song is about? And he said, no, Daddy, but I like it. And I said, that song says that it doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how many Legos we have. I had to speak his language. It doesn't matter how many toys we have or Wii games we have, that if we have all that stuff and we don't do what God asks us to do, then we're not living like we ought to. And while that sounds so easy talking to a child, it is so difficult to live out in our lives. Because you see, we live in a culture that tells us more is better. In fact, there's a survey recently in Orange County, California, considered uh, for a long time the richest city in America. The wealthiest city in America. And so they thought it'd be interesting to go to this wealthiest city in America and ask, what is your biggest need? What is your biggest need in the place that has more money than any other place in America, which means that it has more money than any other place in the world? This is the richest city or town in the world. What do you need more of? You know what the number one response was? Just a little more money. Norman Rockefeller was once asked, how much money do you need? And he said, just a little bit more. Isn't it amazing how money holds that with us on this earth? Here's what I think is interesting about the contrast between the investments. Is Jesus says, don't lay up treasures for yourself here where moth, rust, a stock market dip, a bank crash can take it. Now, I'm not saying don't go take all your money out of the banks. I don't want to start a run on the banks like they had to run on the gas. Amen? That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you ought to be investing yourself in things that have lasting, eternal value. I read this week of a question that a great pastor, A.W. Tozer, used to ask about how do you know whether you're investing in earthly things or where you're distracted by earthly things or you're investing in eternity? And he says, it just simply comes down to this. Ask yourself these four questions. What do you value most? What would you most hate to lose? What do our thoughts turn to most frequently when we are free to think of what we will? And finally, what in life affords us the greatest pleasure? And when you look at those four questions, what do you value most? What would you most want to uh, hate to lose? What, what, what do you think about when you're free to think of anything? And what is your greatest pleasure in life? That is your treasure. The reason that treasure is such an appealing thing is because you have the stories of old about pirates or or people that would find a treasure map and they gave up everything they could to find the place with the X. And what God is telling us here is that we ought to live our lives investing constantly in the X that is there, not in the here and now, but in the time to come, the place to come. Because you can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. There may be one out there, but that sure sounds like a good title for a Southern Gospel song, doesn't it? Can't take it with me, but you sure can send it on ahead. So here's the second thing we need to understand today. Not only do we need to invest wisely, but we need to look for opportunities to give. 
Now, what is understood when he talks about that we don't store up ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but we store up ourselves treasures in heaven, what is understood there is that it will take some giving, it will take some sacrifice, it will take some ability to give out of our heart and our resources in order to lay up those treasures in heaven. But it really isn't a short-sighted thing. It's an understanding of what God called us to do. We're just exchanging money here for the income that comes there. So we need to look for opportunities to give. There are four things we're going to talk about in this understanding opportunities to give. And those are the, the, the attitude, the training wheels, the next step, and the direction. And the first thing that we need to understand is that the attitude of how we give is the most important thing about giving. And what God requires us to do is to give cheerfully. This week, as I was reading that passage of Scripture, I began to ask myself this question. What time in our service, or what times in our services in general, in churches across this country, are the most um, calm and thoughtful? And as I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, it's generally not the beginning of the service. You know, we have a welcome to today that... The, the orchestra did a, did a great job. We sang some amazing praise services. Usually the sermon, there's some laughter in there. Maybe. Depending. Some days, right? Some days are better than others. There's, there's generally a kind of an ebb and flow of emotions there. And then we get to the point where we do the invitation. And we get to the invitation, and the invitation is a thoughtful time, but we're still singing. And after the invitation... We have a prayer. And then if the prayer comes, and then what do we do? We do the offering here. Now, it doesn't matter where the offering is. You know what I've discovered about the offering in almost every church that I've ever been in? And while the accompanists play unbelievably here, and Barbara and Sandy do a great job, is there is the least amount of talking, which is not a bad thing, the least amount of sound, and the most sitting perfectly still in the offering. When I was a child, you know when I used to get a hit the most? In the offering. Now, that was because it was a little time to get fidgety. So, you, you know what I mean by hit. I, I don't mean really hit. I just mean the elbow to the ribs. I meant the, the pinching on the leg. Now, some of you would, you know, my parents were great parents, but, you know, they had to keep me in line a little bit. Why? Because we don't talk during. The offering is a quiet time. So this is what I thought. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says that God loves a quiet giver. Is that what it says? God loves a sad giver. Is that what it says? God loves a deep in thought, eyes closed giver. Is that what it says? What does it say? God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's on two counts. First of all, that's in the attitude of actually giving. Now, you have to understand that our day and time, it is easier to give than it has ever been. Now, I don't mean necessarily that your bank account says it's easier to give, but today we got all kinds of ways to give. we got, we got checkbooks. we got cash. we got all kinds of ways that you can give. And so it, it's 
partly that cheerful giving is when you're actually writing out or taking the cash out or you're thinking about how you're going to give when you're signing over that money, when you're doing it online, however you choose in ways to give. When you're doing that, what is in your heart as you're giving is that, oh, well, here's something I've got to do attitude. Is it, I wish I didn't have to do this attitude. Is it, well, this month I guess I'll try to do this attitude. Is it, I can't believe I get to do this kind of attitude. And then when it comes to the actual giving part, when you're putting it in the plate, when you're giving it to the person, when you're doing the act of giving, do you do it with a cheerful heart or is it something that burns on your soul? Now, I know that I'm kind of being heavy-handed about being cheerful. But the truth is God wants us to have some fun. All right? Just for a second, let's say that for a minute. All right, say, God wants me to have fun. Say that. Now, now, this time I want you to say it and, and mean it, okay? Because some of you said that with a scowl on your face. And God intends for us to have a good time. So say, God wants me to have fun. Say that again. And He especially wants you to have fun when you give. He wants you to enjoy it. I was talking uh, outside in the foyer today with, with uh, Cliff and Randy Brooks and we were just talking. I was talking about this group of guys that I had in seminary. That we were, we were, we were good friends, and we were all living our lives what we thought were, were going to the Lord. But, but when you're in seminary, there are some guys there that that make you feel absolutely terrible about your walk with the Lord. Because they're always wearing the suits, and they're always quoting 48 verses of Scripture in class. And they're bringing up all the biggest questions you can have. And they're talking about their six-hour quiet time that morning. They got up at 2 o'clock in the morning to do. And my friends and I like to go and eat burritos at BG's and talk about sports. I remember one day we were sitting around and we were talking. This is what I told Randy and Cliff this morning. I just looked at him. I said, you know what? We are not the most spiritual guys on campus. But there ain't nobody that has as much fun as we do. And you know what? I think God looks at that and is pleased. Because God intends for us to have fun. Some of you in this room need to be liberated from the idea that God is pressing His hand down upon you, saying that you cannot enjoy life in any way. And that especially means giving. So we're attitude. We're supposed to cheerfully give. I talk about it all the time. We talk about giving. When those children come and they dump their pennies in the bucket during BBS week, it is cheerful giving at its finest. Music is playing. They can't wait. You can see them. I call them my kindergarten or preschool, kindergarten, first, second, third grade. When I'm calling the first grader, the third graders up on the pews going. I don't ever see you on Sunday morning waiting for that offering plate to get there. Every once in a while, I'll see you sitting on the edge of the row, and you're the only one on the row, and you'll do the. I'll see that. But I don't see any of you go, when is that thing going to get to me? Hurry up! We need to cheerfully give. Here are the training wheels of giving. Tithing. The training wheels of giving are Tithing. Now, tithing is one of those good church words that nobody sometimes understands what it means. Tithing just means, as a word, tithe just means 10%. That's what the word means. And somebody will say to me, but pastor, in the Old Testament, I know it talks about tithing, but in the New Testament, it never says the word 
tithing. And you know what I say? You're right. That's because the Old Testament was the tutor to get us to the New Testament. When it talks about the law in the Old Testament, that's not the end-all, be-all. What that is is just the basics of what we need to understand. So when Jesus came, we'd understand what He was doing and how we could give our lives to Him. In the same way, tithing are the training wheels in the Old Testament that gets us ready for the next step. But before we move to the next step, let me remind you that the training wheels are still important. They are the things that help us to begin to understand. Some of you in this room have not been giving. I don't know who it is. I purposely don't look at that stuff. We have other people that put all that stuff in. We have other people that sometimes see that stuff. I don't see that stuff at all. And I try to make it as few as possible. People in our church see that stuff. That's between you and the Lord. But some of you in this room I know aren't giving. And some of you need to start with the training wheels. Now some of you say, well, what if I start with 1%? What if I start with 14 training wheels on there and then I get down to just two? Scripture never suggests that we ought to slowly get into our commitment with the Lord. You need to tithe. I could sit here and tell you that we need you to tithe because we need the money in the church. And the truth is that that doing ministry costs money, yes. But the reason I want you to tithe has nothing to do with the budget of this church. The reason I want you to tithe is because it is a direct command from God to give unto Him. And you are missing out on more than you can ever imagine when you hold back from God what He has called us to give. That's the reason I want you to tithe. It doesn't have a thing to do with our budget. That's the training wheels. You know, Eli started to to learn to ride his bike a couple of years ago, and we had those training wheels on there, and the training wheels were there to help him to learn what it meant to ride the bike. Now you say, so does that mean what I learned how to give, I don't have to tithe anymore? No. What happens is, with the training wheels, you can only go so fast and so far. But when you begin to take those training wheels off, then you'll see that God will open up new directions for you. You see, the training wheels is tithing, but the next step is giving. Now, in the Old Testament, they talk about tithes and offerings. And, you know, there's that verse in Malachi chapter 3, the last uh, book in the Old Testament. Some people call him the Italian prophet Malachi, but it's Malachi, all right? Some of you will get that at dessert at lunch. Malachi is there. In chapter 3, it talks about robbing God. Some of you have heard that sermon. Some of you have heard people preach on that sermon and bang on that sermon that you're robbing God when you don't give to Him. Well, here's the thing. That's what Malachi says. But again, God says, and the point there is not that God needs the money, so you're taking the money from Him. The point is God wants to bless the people like they wouldn't believe, but He's not allowed to because they're not being faithful to doing what He's called them to do. But in the middle of that, what it says is you are withholding your tithes and offerings. Now, some people think that's all the same thing, but it's not. Your tithes are those things that, that, that God calls you 10% off the top. From the beginning, God says, I demand your first fruits, your first 10% you give to me. People say, well, does that on gross? Is that on after taxes? Is that before retirement? It just means give 10% of what you make. Let me tell you, if you're asking those questions, you probably need to investigate your heart just a little bit. But what it says is that the giving is the next step. Once you're giving your tithes, that's not the end. 
God also wants you to give over and above that. Special gifts. One of the things that has to happen in our lives is we have to come to the understanding that when we give unto the Lord, whether we're going to talk in a minute how to give unto the Lord, and it's not just the church, but when you give unto the Lord, when you're doing that, that what happens in our lives is we see that outflow, and we see things happen, and we're investing in eternity. We forget sometimes how joyful it is to see God move. We give cheerfully. We tithe. But the next step is giving. And after that, the direction is people. This is what I mean by that. You give in order to see people be drawn into a passionate relationship with Christ. New Testament and Old Testament both agree on this, that when you give, you give for the purposes of the Lord. Now, are there ways to give? Yes. First of all, you can tithe to your local church. And I believe that whatever local church you are a part of, that God calls you to tithe to that church. I believe that's what it meant, that the first place you need to give is to your church. If you're not giving to your church, then giving outside of your church isn't necessarily doing what God's called you to do. You are to tithe at your local church. Now that means, if you are a member of your church, then your local church is us, right? Usens, right here. We are it. And so if you are a member of this church, then you ought to be tithing to this church. Here's another thing. If you're not a member of this church, but you're a member of another church, maybe you're visiting today, maybe you're a guest, and you haven't been tithing there, then other pastors are going to be happy with me because you need to tithe at your local church. Now you say, what if I'm moving my membership here? When you move your membership here, give. We would love for you to be a part of that. There are other places to give. You can give to the special mission offerings we do. That goes directly to the missionaries that are impacting people. You can give to uh, causes outside of here. The Red Cross is a great organization to give to. Tennessee Baptist Disaster Relief, great organization to give to. There are other places to give. The point is that you're doing what God calls you to do first, and then you get to give in other places. But it's always focused on people. In the New Testament, it seems pretty obvious that the two places we ought to specifically target the money that we use is for people that are poor and people that are lost. That's where we need to be giving and funneling our money. One of the things that I hope to do as your pastor, and as we are currently in the budget process and we'll uh, be here in the long term talking about budgets and what's happening in our budgets, is that we send more and more money to places where there are people that are poor and people that are lost. Whether that be here in Goodlettsville, whether that be in Ridgetop, Greenbrier, Hendersonville, wherever you may live, whether that be in the Nashville, greater Nashville area, whether that be in the state of Tennessee, whether that be in the country of the United States, whether that be Lynch, Kentucky, or New Orleans, Louisiana, or whether that be around the world, to places like Porto Segura, Brazil, or whether that be in places that we don't ever see through our Annie Armstrong and our Lottie Moon giving, that we will send money to places where people are poor and people are lost. People sometimes ask me why I'm Southern Baptist. Why do you pastor a Southern Baptist church? I don't know whether you know this or not, but a lot of guys my age are no longer pastoring Southern Baptist churches. They're pastoring non-denominational churches. They're, they're pastoring churches that don't broadcast who they are. And Here's my answer. One of the reasons, there are a lot of reasons. There are doctrinal reasons. There are theological reasons. There are, are, are home reasons. I was raised in this denomination. 
But the greatest thing about being a Southern Baptist is that we marshal our resources together to go to the poor and to the lost. And when we put it all together and we send it, we are able to do as a group of however many we are, some numbers say 16 million, the number's probably close to 7 million, 8 million. Well, however many we are, 8 million of us together can do what one congregation can. And so we give. Here's the key point about that second point. Is that we need to look for opportunities to give. Here's the third thing. When we give, we can bank on the results. And the results are guaranteed. One of the big things that happened this week was the crisis was onset by the fact that banks were failing, right? Where's my money? Is my money safe? I know the FDIC's got me covered. The insurance is there. Is my money safe? You know, I was, uh, I was uh, hearing this week that the Royal Bank of Scotland failed this week. I can't remember the date that it was, that it was uh, constituted, but it was back in the 1600s. The Royal Bank of Scotland was started, and it survived the War of 1812. It survived uh, World War I, World War II. It survived the Great Depression, but it didn't survive Monday and Tuesday. And I remember thinking how fragile money can be. And then I came across this passage again and came back to it. It's an interesting thing to be reading this passage over and over again this week while all this was happening in the financial world. And I was reminded again that God guarantees our investments. And I just want to tell you real quickly, I know the FDIC is good and our, our government insuring money is a good thing that it insures but I trust God a little bit more than our government. And that's not a statement necessarily good or bad about the government. But God's pretty trustworthy. Amen? And He promises us that He will guarantee the results. He says, Do not store up yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What it says here in the Scripture is that one of the things that's interesting about that is that, that the words that are used in the original language and in another place suggest that not only is it saying that what we store up in heaven will not ruin, but what it also suggests is that when we get there, it will be inexhaustible. That it will be continuous and ongoing. We can't use it up. And so the results are guaranteed, but here are some results that you don't see necessarily in this passage of Scripture that, that are interesting, because in Scripture it also teaches that when the people of God do what God calls them to do, specifically in giving, then God brings revival. You know, one of the things that you hear over and over again is we need revival in this country, or we need revival in this church, and I would agree with that. We need a spiritual reawakening of God's people to come together and say that we are living for the Lord completely and to have His presence fall down in a unique way that causes us all to be transformed more into the likeness of who He is, to be passionately devoted following Him. But Scripture teaches that if you want revival, one of the most practical steps you can take is to start giving. In the Old Testament, there's a particular passage of Scripture where Hezekiah is talking about revival, and he talks about the things that have to come in revival, things that we would all understand. First of all, that there has to be celebration for revival to come. Back to that understanding that God wants us to enjoy ourselves, to have fun, to celebrate who He is, to praise Him. 
But they're also in revival has to come cleansing. People have to confess their sins. They have to lay them out there before the Lord. And they have to say, God, here I am. Everything I am, warts and all, this is who I am. And I need you today to cleanse me, to make me white as snow, to wash me clean. But then he says that what comes in the midst of revival is also generous giving. And one of the results that you can bank on is if the people of this congregation started to give unto the Lord while celebrating and cleansing from within as God cleanses us, then there would break out a work of God in this place that would stagger us. Generous giving, enthusiastic, priority giving comes with revival. And here's the amazing thing. In that same passage of Scripture, it tells us that it sustains revival. Jesus says, do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. This morning, the question I just have for you is, are you investing in a can't-miss investment? Experiencing financial freedom means being free from the conditions that surround us, the stress that surrounds us. And one of the easiest ways to break free from that is to apply God's principles, and one of which is that you are to give unto the Lord, to give back unto Him. And so this morning, my question for you is, are you obeying the Lord?